0: Are you looking for truth from God's word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear.
1: Here's what happens next. It says, now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill up the water pots with water. So they fill them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And notice what happened. The water became wine. Well, there's a lot I'd like to share with you, but I'd like to do it now by way of principle. So if you want to take out your notes, you might want to look at that right now because I want to show you where it went from Mary making the suggestion and then Jesus Christ giving information and then finally Mary submits. So what are some observations about this incredible miracle? When Jesus gives gifts, he gives them lavishly. He gives them lavishly. I like to use the term grace upon grace. In the Greek it says grace heaped upon grace. For my birthday, Kira will often make me one of my most favorite birthday cakes. For me, it might cause you shudders, but for me, I really enjoy German chocolate cake. How many of you enjoy German chocolate cake? Phew. But Carol loves me so much that she doesn't just make German chocolate cake and put icing on it. She buys a second tub of icing. So I get two tubs of icing on top of my cake because I don't want my German chocolate cake to be just dry cake. I want it to just drip with all that icing. Now, wouldn't you like to be in our house when we have a birthday party for me? Because you get plenty of that stuff. Well, I want you to know that when Jesus does a miracle, he doesn't just kind of give you a drop of wine. He lavishly gives it to you. Now, notice it talked about six of those water pots. Now, those six of those pots would hold so much liquid, 20 to 30 gallons of it. Now, I got thinking, all right, they've already drunk their fill. So that means all the wine is gone. Most all the liquid probably is gone. And now they're saying, we need more wine. The party is still rocking. So Jesus says, all right, get those six pots that are there. So he brings them all out, and it says, fill them to the brim. He didn't do it halfway, so that he'd do it halfway with water and then halfway with wine. He just took it all. They're all empty. Then he filled it all up with water. All right, that's 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Now, I don't drink wine. I don't know how, I don't know how much is even in a bottle of wine, but how many bottles of wine would there be for 160 gallons of wine? Then I got thinking, if you made that much wine, how many people were... At, if, if you had one gallon of wine each, can you imagine what this party would be like? In a minute, you're going to hear what it's like because it talked about being drunken. Well, let's go back to this, though. He did it lavishly. The point wasn't to get them drunk. Stay with me. I'll explain that in a moment. The point was that he was going to do it lavishly. Now, I got thinking when he had these six pots, it wasn't just pot pots. These were stone pots. Now... At our house, we do have a stone pot. I don't know where we got it, but it's one of those real heavy concrete pots. But we also have, Carol got it at a garage sale, one of these terracotta pots. They're kind of orange You know what I mean? They look like those Mexican pots. They're kind of orange. How many know what I mean? Say, uh-huh. All right. I believe the reason they were using the stone pots is because those stone pots, as Scripture says, were used for purifications, and stone pots kept the water that was used in those pots, the most pure, because they would use it to wash your hands before you ate. Sometimes you would wash it even between meals, and you'd wash it so carefully, almost like a surgeon would, that you would have to let the water drip down your elbow, because those pots were special pots. The other kind of pots would be ones the water could leak out of, it can get kind of rancid in there, it can kind of get stale in it, so these were special pots. Now, my dad, when I was growing up, was a painting contractor. And I was a young pipsqueak, and Dad put me to work when I was 12. And first thing he told me is, All right, Stan, I want all those those buckets of paint. I want you to put them in the truck over there. And he did his thing. And I thought, Oh, no problem. I can do that. These were big five-gallon buckets of paint. Have you ever carried a five-gallon bucket of paint? Do you know how heavy that is? Now, I know paint's heavier than water and probably is heavier than wine. But at the same time, five gallons is really heavy. So I'm kind of... I set it down. I work... You know, I'm doing this thing for all afternoon. Now think about one pot would have 20 to 30 gallons. That would be almost like four, carrying four, five gallon. Can you imagine those servants? They all had to get there. They're all moving this thing over there for them. So the first one is that when God does something, he does it lavishly. When he heals somebody, it's completely. When he raises them from the dead, he does it completely. When he provides wine, you have all that you're ever going to need. Here's the second truth, and that is that Jesus gives it purposely. Now, what you might want to read between the lines here is that these pots were used for, for water, for purification. When he turned those same pots, he could have used any of the pots. He could have said, bring those buckets. He could have said, bring those, you know, those, those bags, you know, those, those, uh, you know how they, the shepherds would carry those kind of bags of water. You know? He said, bring all that stuff out. He said, no, no, out of all the pots that are here, I want those six pots. And I'm wondering sometimes, this is ponzism. Five disciples and Jesus, so maybe these were going to be six gifts for the wedding. I so don't say take six of these pots over here, and these pots were so special because he was about to tell them. Now we're not going to put this special water purification in here. What we're going to do now is I'm going to take, change that water. Watch this, and I'm going to put wine into this. And so what I'm going to show you now, it's not about the outside. It's not about all that surfacey stuff. It's not all about that tradition because nowhere in the Bible does it say you had to do that with that purif- purification water out of those particular pots. So he's saying right now, it's not about the pots. It's about the miracle worker right here. So he has a purpose behind it. He's starting to set his case of what he's going to be teaching in the future. Jesus often gives his gifts unexpectedly and from very unexpected sources. Well, again, we talked a little bit about that, so I don't need to open up that, except when God does something, it's always going to come from a place sometimes we don't expect. But I like the fourth point, and that is God often involves us in doing something ordinary. I got thinking about all the people that probably could have helped with this project, but he asked some servants to do that. So you had the bride, the groom, the bride's party, you had Mary, you had the disciples, five of them anyway. You had the half-brothers of Jesus, but he calls these servants to do it. Now here's what I thought was interesting. In the Bible, they use different words for servants and slaves. You weren't a slave because you were bought or sold into slavery. You weren't a servant because you were necessarily hired out. This was a word that we would use today for the word deacon. This merely meant someone who perhaps at this particular party was someone who says, I'll help serve. I'll be one of the workers here to make this party real special. Now, this might help you a little bit. We had a beautiful reception here yesterday for Tim and Mary. Now, we had some deacons that were here that helped out moving some chairs and tables. I'm grateful for all of them that helped. We had some women here. Now, they're not designated as deaconesses. But they came along. They were working in the kitchen. They were setting tables out. They were putting the food out. They were the ones that when we needed to do something, we could go to them and say, are we ready? Should we start now? Where are we going to put this? Where do you want that? Et cetera. Those were the kind of people that were doing it. Now, my point is simply this. Often when Jesus does a miracle, it's going to involve other people in this as well. And some of you might be used of God to help bring the message of the gospel to other people, a truth of God to help another Christian to grow in his faith. But in any case, God will use ordinary servants who just want to be about the business of serving others. And God says, it's through you. You're the kind of person that's going to change your life. You're the kind of person that's going to make a difference. And the last year is when God does something, he does it very powerfully, but he also does it without a lot of showiness. Now, again, he didn't raise someone from the dead. He did it very simply. It was one that was an important thing that he did, but it wasn't very showy. There's a couple other things about these miracles that I found to be very interesting. When you go back to Moses, do you remember the things that he did when he was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt? He turned the water then into what? Anybody remember? What did he turn the water into? Blood. That was a sign of judgment at that time. Jesus took wine And he took water and turned it into wine. That was a sign of joy. In the Old Testament, this was under God's law in judgment. Not the law yet given, but still the law. And then over here, you've got grace where the Lord says, I'm going to lavishly bless. So when I look at these, I thought, that's interesting when he does this. And then I looked at the miracles just in the Gospel of John. The first miracle he does, he does it at a private wedding party. And it's a wonderful thing that he does right there, but he does it very privately. The last miracle... The seventh miracle that he does he does it not so privately he does it openly and he takes a dead person, Lazarus and he brings them back to life again. So you go from marrying to burying. You go from one where he does it privately to another he does it publicly. So how he does his miracles does not necessarily mean that he's going to do it in a big open arena. It could happen in your home. It could happen with your family. And there may even be a time that God might choose to do a miracle in your life as well. Now, Something else about miracles that I thought was interesting and that is that when he does these miracles sometimes they're done in the physical realm but really it's to show us the spiritual realm. So everything that's done physical isn't just about uh-oh, there's not enough wine here we've got to take care of this so let's, let's see what he does and wow, he's a great miracle worker. It's a lot more than that. It pushes towards the spiritual. Something else. When God does a miracle he doesn't point that miracle to the miracle again. He points that miracle to the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you look at this particular miracle, it's not so much about the water and the wine. It's all about what is, who's Jesus? What is Jesus doing in all this? How can I learn more about Him? What about Him do I not know? Now I'd like you to stay with me on this next thought. Many years ago, there was what we called historical Jesus. Back in the late 1800s, there was a lot of people that were coming together to look at the Bible and began to criticize Jesus. And they would say, okay, I believe that Jesus Christ existed. There's enough documents, all that kind of stuff. We believe Jesus Christ existed. He's a historical figure, just very much like, and you can name all the other historical figures. But what those people did do is they removed from this historical Jesus the power to do the supernatural. So all you had was a historical Jesus. In a sense, we do believe in the historical Jesus. He really did exist. But we also believe in the deified Jesus, which has the power to do miracles. So when we see Jesus doing this, what we're doing is we're taking him and raising him above all other historical figures, and now he has supernatural power. Power to do something that would be very, very good, very, very wonderful. And he was doing this. If you don't mind, I'd like to go in a parenthesis for a second because some of you that are listening to me might be saying this. What about wine? Jesus turned the water into wine? Does that mean we can drink wine? wine Hey, bring it on. So let me speak a little bit about the wine issue. All right, first of all, there's two things about wine in the Bible. There's a bunch of things, but here's two to remember first. First of all, the wine in the Bible was a different recipe than the wine that you'll buy today at Safeway or Foodland or at your liquor store. It's a lot different recipe then than it is now. Secondly, the Bible and the reason to drink the wine in the Bible days, as it was said was more for cultural reasons and some for medical reasons, some because the water then wasn't clear or clean. It was something that could cause sickness and disease. So it was more of a cultural thing. Today when people drink rind, it's mostly a um, social thing. It's other people are doing it, puts a buzz on, etc. And so there's a lot different reasons. Now, those of you that have traveled in a third world country, sometimes when you're there, you're often told, don't eat fruit off the fruit stands, don't eat food you don't know, and don't drink the water. Have you ever heard that before? Don't drink the water. So they encourage you to either get bottled water or get soda pop or something like that so that you can drink that because that's been through some kind of a process. Well, very similar, the same way. To make sure that what we're drinking, the water wasn't that good, but wine would be better. So they would do that. So does the Bible forbid us having wine, no, it doesn't forbid us from having wine, but here's what it does do. It does forbid us to go towards drunkenness. And wine in the Bible days, if it wasn't watered down, it would then become hard liquor like we would have today. Still wine, but extremely fermented. and would be very dangerous to drink, and God certainly told us not to do that. Now, some people might say, well, Pastor, do you drink wine? What should we do? And well, I think you need to be fully persuaded in your own mind what you should or should not do. One thing that is not open for debate, and that is drunkenness. The Bible says never to move towards drunkenness. So some of you might say, well, okay, I'm going to go ahead and drink wine as long as I don't get drunk. But here's a bigger question, though. Uh, and I want you to think through with this. If you drink the wine, still remember, the wine you drink today is not the same wine that's in the Bible. The second thing you want to think if you're going to drink wine today is, where is the threshold between drunkenness and non-drunkenness? You know, is it when you fall down, or you wreck the car, or you beat your mate, then you're drunk? What is it? Is it when you're giddy, or when you're angry, or when you fall asleep? Are you drunk? I don't know. I know this week, there was a famous painter that has painted thousands of Christian paintings with verses on it and lights in it. They found him dead the next morning. 24 hours later, they found out that he was on a drunken binge that night. So where is that line that's to be drawn? My Bible says that my mind needs to be as clear as possible to be able to receive the knowledge of His Word so I can think very clearly. So nothing should affect my thinking. So anything that I put into my body, liquid or solid or smoking or any other way that would affect my ability to think as clearly and as accurately about Jesus Christ, maybe as soon as I step over that, maybe that's a form of drunkenness. I I don't know. So we know that drunkenness is not right. So for me, I can only say for Carol and me in our house... Here's how we're fully persuaded for us. First of all, when we think about the whole aspect of drinking and etc., we think of the culture in which we live today. That when people do drink today, more cases than not, it's either to be socially accepted or to put a buzz on or it's a drug, we might even say. "No, that's a very strong word, so I'm not going to say everybody who drinks it, they're addicted to it like a drug. But I think all of us will agree that there's plenty of recovery places that are helping people who started with a social and it went downhill from there. And I know you can build your arguments about other things, but right now just stay with the argument of alcohol. And so there is a drug effect on this. The second reason that Carol and I have chosen not to drink that is because of when we do, there are people that would look at us and they would be absolutely aghast. If I went out and I'm having wine and someone sees me drink that no matter what the Bible says about I have freedom to do this as long as I don't get drunk, there's plenty of people for whatever more and value that they have, the majority would say, oh, that's Pastor Pond, he's drinking, look at him drink. And I think perhaps with those people, I would lose my ability to communicate God's word on other issues because I have built an unnecessary wall between them and me and I've done it with some form of alcohol or wine. And so I, I, I don't know that I need that in my life to do that. And then there's a third reason. And the third reason is, is it's possible that some might say, oh, Pastor Pons, he's drinking wine. And um, that's okay. He drinks it. I can drink it. And so now he drinks it. Now he ruins his testimony. He goes so far into drunkenness. Others are following him. And all of a sudden this has gotten out of control. And so I could cause that brother to stumble. Now... An argument could be made that there'd be some that are saying, oh, he drinks that? He's really a cool dude, man. He, he's he got the freedom. He's got freedom in Christ. And I have freedom in Christ and might continue to do so. But it's possible, I think, if we're mature enough to say that could be a slippery slope if we keep pursuing that. At least that's the way we see it. And um, so for us, we've chosen not to do that. On the other hand, I need to make it clear that I can't see a complete verse that would forbid us from drinking wine but it does say about drunkenness. But we must remember that the wine in the Bible days had a different dynamic that we have today. At least the study that I have, you might have done your own study and let every man be fully persuading in his own mind. Now some of you are thinking, uh-oh, I drink, does the pastor still like me? I love you. Invite me to your house. I, do, I, I like steak, medium, that'd be great. Come on, don't worry about that. That's between you and the Lord. I love you, I will never judge you. When I stand before the judgment seat of Christ... I will be all by myself and I'll rise and fall on my decisions and mine will be to love you and never judge you and then uh, I would only ask that you would do the same for me. Amen? Amen? All right. So that's what we might say a little bit about wine drinking here and I do need to bring this message to a close because it's it's so rich and so helpful but yet at the same time we need to understand this and that is that these miracles are going to show us a couple of things. So hear this and then oh, we're almost out of time. This this won't take long. What this is show. Let me do this differently. Take you back to the verse 11. This is where you want to have your pens ready. You've got to have your pens ready for this. This beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee... "...and manifested His glory." Underline that and put a number one by it. This is the beginning of signs. And so the first mentioned principle in hermeneutics is when something is first mentioned, that means it's setting the tenant for the rest of the miracles. So here's what it is. It manifested His glory. That's the first reason He did this. It wasn't about the water. It wasn't about the wine. It was all about manifesting His glory in this particular miracle. Then number two, "...and His disciples believed in Him." which is, it's just about Jesus, but he wants others to be a part of his forever family, so he is doing this to raise these people's um, ability now, or knowledge, or confidence, that he is who he claims to be, that he is the Son of God, and he can do anything he wants. I believe in him. That'll take them to the next level of maybe even faith alone in Christ, where they come to faith, and they might become a Christian. The point is that he is manifesting his glory, and people are believing in him, and that's why he's doing these miracles. Now, We talk about these miracles. It's done in his creation. Now, I want you to know that Jesus, every day, on planet Earth, every single day, in today's time, he is turning water into wine. Do you agree with me? How does he do that? Water comes down, the vines grow, pops the grapes, the grapes are then harvested, they're brought into a vat, they ferment, put them in a bottle, and they sell them. That whole process, Jesus is turning the water into wine. What is different about what I just said compared to what's in Scripture? What he did in Scripture, he did it bam, just like that. Okay, that's telling you that, yeah, I put all this creation together. This is that whole process that we do it, but I am the King of Kings and I'm the creator that I can bypass the process that I've already established. I can go ahead and turn water into wine immediately right then. There are wineries in Napa, there's wineries, there's three wineries here in Hawaii, one's in Diamond Head. We have, he can do that anywhere he wants to with his ground is set up to do that in the confines of our environment. But he did it just like that, that quickly. To me, that's, that's huge that he did that. So he can create if he wants to. The second thing is he can transform because he took this and he transformed the water into wine and he made something special out of this. And I look at my life and I say, he has transformed my life. Today we heard sweet Annie up here sing a song that was really her testimony, how beautiful the Lord is with me. I sung it when I was 15, but there was a veil. But God in his great rich love toward me, I came to understand how beautiful he really was. That was a transformation. You could even write in your margin. That was a recreation. She was created in the image of God, and now she was created as a child of God by faith alone in him. Now, folks, that's the two points I wanted you to get. All this about the sign is to manifest the glory of the Lord and that the disciples and you too could believe in Him. Let's pray, shall we? With every head bowed and every eye closed, it was a wonderful thing that Jesus did. Yeah, it was a party. It shows us that He cares for people and He wants them to celebrate and have a good time. There was a need, so He meets needs and At that time, they needed to have something more than water. They needed wine that was a part of it. It would be a great embarrassment to the family if there was no wine because that was the culture. In fact, there's enough evidence to say that if the groom didn't have the wine, that even the bride's family could go back and sue the groom for not providing the kind of celebration that should have been there. And so Jesus heard about that through the mother. He knew about it ahead of time. I think he was so sovereign that he put all this together so he could come there and be invited by his mom, come there and do this miracle to manifest his glory and so that his disciples have their first step in believing in him. So all of that, he created the problem, permitted the problem, prescribed the problem, and then he solved the problem. But the focus was on him. So folks, you can go home arguing over should I drink wine or not or is the pastor right or wrong and all that stuff. And you're going to get bogged down into that and you're going to miss the bigger picture. And I don't want you to do that. When you want to realize that it was the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and he's setting up his earthly ministry for his heavenly kingdom by doing this first miracle, he is the Lord. He is the historical Jesus, but he's also the deified Jesus. He is God in the flesh. He can do that. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, with whomever he wants, however he wants. For whatever reason he wants. Because it's all about him receiving glory. Now that's his part. Your part is to do the believing. Our part is to do the believing. What miracles has the Lord done in your life in the past already? Have you been in a near accident and your life has been spared? God did that. Would you believe in him? Did you nearly die at birth or giving birth and the Lord spared you? Did God provide something for you that you know that in no way, shape, or form, no human could have known that need and did that for you? You glorify the Lord right now. And in your heart of hearts, believe in Him. Trust in Him. For those of you that are outside the faith, why don't you come in the faith and simply say to Him, Lord, I don't understand all of this, but I do know You are the Lord, and I do believe You lived, You died, and You rose again. I believe all that is true, and I believe You did it for me. And Lord, I don't come to you with anything except an empty pot. I'm just empty. I can't clean up anything. I can't promise anything. I'm just coming to you and I'm asking you to recreate me, to transform me. I'm asking you to forgive me of all my sin and make me a part of your forever family. And you said if I trusted in you, I'm believing in you, that you are the Lord that did that. Without any good deeds I do myself, I'm coming to you just as I am. And I'm going to believe that you'll do that right now. Jesus says, he that believes on me has everlasting life. He says, your outward bodies may waste away, but inwardly we're renewed every day. We're renewed, recreated every day. Is there anyone in here that would say, yeah, that's for me. I own those truths. And I can see it even in the water and the wine miracle. And I want it today. Pastor, would you pray for me? Because I'm trusting Christ as my Savior. Never done it before. I'm doing it now. Is there anyone in here by an uplifted hand that would silently say that with that hand? Pastor, I'm trusting Christ. Would you pray for me? I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm not going to mention your name in my prayer. Raising your hand doesn't save you. But trusting Christ will. Is there anyone in here today that would say by that uplifted hand, Pastor, pray for me? Would you put your hand up? Is there anyone at all?